Amendment guarantees the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Notice anything about that list? Right. In thinking through what they wanted to protect, the founders wrote down a bunch of physical stuff. They were worried about the government busting into their rooms and rifling through their desks. We should still be concerned about no-knock raids at our houses. But today we also face a new set of challenges, challenges brought on by the advance of technology. Powerful cameras and sensors can monitor virtually every outdoor space. AI-driven software platforms can process reams of data. The capacity to store information for later use is practically infinite. And, of course, all kinds of personal information is floating around on the internet, available to anyone interested in vacuuming it up. Put all this together, and the government can learn a remarkable amount about you. More than that, it can do so without ever searching you in an old-fashioned sense. It doesn't even need to conduct a search directed at you specifically. Question is, can the Fourth Amendment and Fourth Amendment jurisprudence keep up? The Supreme Court has granted the state broad authority to monitor public thoroughfares, including with, quote, such enhancement of police officer senses as science and technology afford them. It has placed only very weak checks on the state's ability to gather information about a person from third parties. And it has put no limits on how the state pools and analyzes information it has lawfully collected. There's indeed a risk, therefore, that increasingly effective tools of surveillance could grind the Fourth Amendment into dust. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. It's my great honor to welcome Nathan Wessler onto the show. He's a deputy director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. In doing his work, he stands at the dead center of the debate over the issues I've just laid out. In 2017, Nate appeared before the United States Supreme Court to argue Carpenter versus United States, one of the biggest tech meets Fourth Amendment cases so far this century. The court ruled in that case that the police generally need a warrant to obtain records of your smartphone location. Nate currently has a petition pending before the court in another important case, Moore versus United States. The question in more is whether the police need a warrant to conduct long-term camera surveillance outside your home. Nate, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation. It's a real privilege to have you on. And this is such an important topic, I think. Uh, I look forward to diving into it with you. Although my first question is, what is it like to argue such a seminal case before the Supreme Court? <laughs> uh, in a word, nerve-wracking. Uh, but there's lots more I could say too. Um, you know, the the you know, I, I've done a lot of appellate arguments, uh, most of them on Fourth Amendment and privacy in, in the digital age issues. And you know, in some respect, this the argument in Carpenter in the Supreme Court was just you know sort of like the the highest profile of those. But in another respect, you know, it requires a sharpening of the arguments and a level of preparation that's totally out of proportion to you know any other court or argument. Uh, and so it was a real process with a, a big team here. It was by no means just me, um, you know, working on the briefs, really honing our arguments, and then 
doing moot court sessions, uh, you know, practice arguments multiple times with really experienced practitioners to make sure we we really honed exactly what I was going to say in response to all of the the expected questions, the you know questions we wanted to get, and the hard questions that we needed to think through how to address. Um, and you know, the Supreme Court is what we call a hot bench uh, as lawyers. You know, it's like the justices just jump in um, a little less these days. They've tried to impose a little more structure on the arguments, but you know, you sometimes can get like a clause out or half a sentence, and then another justice will jump in to start asking. So it's really also a process of making sure the lawyer knows exactly what you want to get out first, what's kind of the order of arguments, how you want to, you know, refocus on our affirmative argument after answering the questions that the justices have. So it's a lot of, lot of preparation, quite nerve wracking up until the moment I stepped up. And then I was just in, in the argument and, and going from there. I would imagine what you want to do is prepare to the point where I think it's old school where the Will Ferrell character, he's kind of a doofus. And then at the end on the quiz show, suddenly he gives this like brilliant answer. And they're like, oh, my God, that was amazing. He's like, I don't know what happened. I blacked out. <laughs> That's um, right. You just you just want to be in a flow and you know it so well that you can, you know, with your your eyes closed and nothing else in your mind, just go where you need to go. Yeah. Yeah. So. Carpenter, let's turn to the case itself, because to my mind, it is about the court very tentatively and very slowly trying to apply the Fourth Amendment in a, in the digital age. In, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a quintessential John Roberts, like Burkean incrementalism decision to make up a term. So before we turn to more, you know, could you set out what Carpenter was about and, and what the court did there? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think your, your description was a good one. It, of course, it wasn't the first time that the court has dipped its toe in giving guidance to the rest of the country on what the Fourth Amendment should mean in the digital age. Uh, you know, as early as 2001, there was a decision that was actually written by Justice Scalia about police using a thermal imaging camera to learn information about the interior of a home. They were looking to see if someone was using a, a marijuana grow light. And uh, instead of getting a warrant to enter the home, they used a thermal imaging camera to learn information about what parts of the house were hotter than others. And a majority of the court uh, said, that's a Fourth Amendment search. You know, using technology to learn things about the interior of someone's home that otherwise you would have needed to bash down the door and go in to look for is regulated by the Fourth Amendment and requires a warrant. And then in 2012, there was a case called Jones, where the court unanimously, although they kind of fractured on the reasoning, unanimously held that when police attach a GPS tracker surreptitiously to someone's car and use it to track the car's location over time. That's a Fourth Amendment search uh, and requires a warrant. A couple of years later, there's a case called Riley about searching people's cell phones after an arrest. The old rule that's been around for many decades is that if police lawfully arrest somebody, then as part of that arrest, they can pat the person down, take anything out of their pockets and search through those. You know, the, the 1970s case, that's kind of the most cited early case or kind of recent early case uh, is about a cigarette pack in someone's pocket. And the court said, well, you know, police are allowed to search that because uh, it might contain something dangerous, like a razor blade, you know, hidden in it and got to protect police safety. And maybe there's evidence in there, you know, say drugs, and you want to avoid the person throwing it away on the way to the, the lockup. And so police get to search what's on them. Uh, and the court there, and unanimously, all nine justices agreed uh, that that rule might be totally fine for physical objects in your body, but you can't extend that old rule to searching someone's cell phone that you take out of their pocket after an arrest because the privacy interest is just out of proportion. You know, never could you have carried all of your correspondence, all of your family photos, all of your medical records, et cetera, et cetera, in your pocket before the cell phone age. And it requires new protections. And that protection is 
police can seize the phone while they arrest you, but if they want to go into it, they need a warrant. So the, the court has developed you know, this um, sort of short series of cases about how to apply this old text of the Fourth Amendment from many generations ago to new digital age context. Uh, and Carpenter is the, the most recent in that series. Carpenter was about cell phone location data. There's sort of a you know, technical explanation of like what the data was and then a, a legal explanation of why we needed an update in our understanding of what the Fourth Amendment meant. So, you know, as I think most people probably know today, if you have a cell phone, it only works by communicating with the cell towers, right? It's radio signals that are listening for calls or text messages or are sending out calls or text messages or making, making data connections or even just checking in with the tower periodically so the network knows where you are. Well, every one of those connections with a cell tower generates a record at the cell phone company of where your phone was, of which cell tower it was connected to, and that tower's geographic coordinates, and which directional antenna on that tower the phone was talking to, meaning you can identify with some level of precision where that phone was at any given time. And it's recording that information over the course of every day, all day long, week in, week out. And the, the companies say they have their own reasons for that data for network diagnostics and for billing and maybe other things. But of course, it turns out to be pretty attractive to police because it's a, a rare investigation where part of the thing police want to be able to demonstrate is where a suspect was at a particular time. And so in all kinds of investigations, police were going to the cell phone companies thousands and thousands of times a year, over 100,000 times a year across the country, going to the cell phone companies, asking for historical cell phone location data in investigations. And they were doing it without a warrant, mostly relying on a, a pretty outdated federal statute that was passed in the mid 1980s addressing various kinds of requests for digital data in law enforcement investigations, uh, which did not require on the face of it a warrant for, for this material. The government argued that, you know, sure, maybe this is sensitive, maybe it's not, doesn't really matter because there's an old set of Supreme Court cases from the 1970s that stands for the proposition in the government's mind that as soon as you share information or your records with a company you're doing business with or some other entity, what they call a third party, you've given up all of your privacy interests under the Fourth Amendment. This has come to be known as the third party doctrine. Uh, so those 1970s cases were about, one was about banking records, where police use a subpoena, which is just a letter effectively to the company compelling them to turn over banking records to, to get uh, canceled checks and account statements and similar records. And in a follow-on case, police made a request without a warrant to a phone company for a record of every phone number a suspect had dialed over time and the uh, phone numbers of calls coming into them. And the court in both those cases said, well, you, you choose to interact with this company, the bank or the phone company. You know that when you write a check, the bank's going to know about it so they can draw funds on your account. You know that when you use your rotary phone to dial a phone number, it has to route through the phone company's equipment. So you've exposed that information to the company. You've given up your control over it. You've therefore given up all your privacy interest in it. And too bad for you if the cops come knocking on the company's door and they hand over your data, no warrant is required. Now, we, you know, we at the ACLU didn't think that was the right rule in the 1970s as to those older kind of analog age records. And we wrote briefs on it. Uh, and there were strong dissents in the Supreme Court in those cases. But whatever that rule means and however wise it is for older kinds of records, it just can't be the case that that is true for everything we now share in the digital age with companies. You know, if that were literally the rule, then police could get all of our email and text message correspondence from, you know, say Google and AT&T uh, without a warrant. They could get a record of everywhere we've been over time from the phone company 
the cell phone location records without a warrant, and so, so much more, you know, medical information, information about the interior of our homes from Internet of Things devices, et cetera. Uh, so in Carpenter, the question was whether third-party doctrine from the 1970s should be extended to allow the government to get our historical cell phone location data from a phone company without a warrant. Uh, and it was a lot of data in that case. The police had gotten months worth of historical cell phone location information about uh, Mr. Carpenter, who became our client, uh, just short of 13,000 individual location points over the course of those months, all without a warrant. And um, and they argued up to the Supreme Court that, that no warrant was required because just by using a phone, you have given up your privacy interest in that that almanac of everywhere you, you've been. The Supreme Court disagreed. They sided with us in a, a decision written by Chief Justice Roberts that explained that before extending older Fourth Amendment rules to new digital age context, courts need to evaluate what's what's changed. Is the privacy interest different? Uh, is something else different? And, and what the court said here is, first, this is extraordinarily private and sensitive information. You know, A record of everywhere you go over time reveals where you sleep at night and whether you go to the doctor, your intimate associations, you know, everything about us you can infer effectively from our patterns or movement. And it's just not true that we voluntarily are turning this over. Uh, the court engaged in this very practical analysis, said to participate in modern American society, you need a cell phone really for work, for family, uh, for social obligations, for emergencies. And once you're carrying that cell phone, unless you put it in airplane mode, thus rendering it useful, useless as a cell phone, you can't avoid the phone company gathering that location data. And so for those reasons, this is more sensitive and less voluntarily created than things that came before. And so a warrant is, is required. And that's the rule we have today as to those records. And now, you know, part of the challenge as a lawyer is to figure out, you know, how to explain to courts, how to apply that rule to other kinds of data that we're now seeing. That was great. You got us through all of the four big Supreme Court cases, tech meets Fourth Amendment in it right off the bat. I appreciate that. And you also captured the way the Fourth Amendment invites such kind of common law legal reasoning. It is often proceeds by analogy and it just trips so hard on new technology. And I feel like you captured that well. What's the old line? You know, any advanced science or technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. So, like when I think of Riley and a smartphone, it actually makes me think of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you know a matchbox is an object and you open it, and the space inside the matchbox is the space it looks like from the outside. The smartphone, you open it, it's like the wardrobe, right? Where it looks like it's the size of a wardrobe and you open it up and there's a whole world inside. Yeah. And how does that, how do you apply some fourth, you know? 1791 doctrine to that thing, a smartphone. I actually often say to my wife when a question comes up and, you know, I'll consult the magic box. <laughs> you know, I say, and right, I say yeah. that it's true, right? So we get these weird, you know, you mentioned Jones and we'll return to this in a moment, but uh, the just eternal exchange between Scalia writing the majority opinion saying, Oh, well, you put a GPS on the truck, so we're going to analogize it to a, a trespass at common law. And uh, Justice Sam Alito, credit where credit's due, you know, no progressive, but he says this doesn't make any sense. There's no 18th century analog to this. And Scalia says, well, maybe it's like, uh, you know, a constable concealing himself in the target's coach. And Alito retorts, you know, that would require either a gigantic coach, a very tiny constable, or both. So 
this is a tough area. I like that you ended, you know, talking about how do you then apply these cases and extend them. The fact that uh, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Carpenter said something like, okay, we're only ruling for like two weeks of cell phone data. And if it's less than that, you know, you're on your own, figure it out. I guess the to tie together everything I just said, you know, I see these individual cases. They're just kind of taking these little individual stabs at different discrete areas. And we have, we're still very far from like sort of a unified theory of getting the Fourth Amendment in line with technology. And with that sort of ground line, let's move on to more because that's another area. Carpenter's third party doctrine, more is more about just how everything in public view currently is available to the police for surveillance. Once again, you're at the uh, tip of the spear, if I can put it that way, in litigating these questions. Uh, please tell us about more and, and what's going on and uh, what your aims are there. Yeah, so um, another increasingly frequent police investigative tactic is, is to use what are called often poll cameras, uh, surreptitious poll camera to surveil somebody's home. And that's what happened in, in this case. So um, this is a case that comes out of Western Massachusetts and police uh, wanted to try to keep tabs on what was going on at a particular house in Springfield where they thought maybe a resident of the house, um, our client's daughter actually uh, was engaged in some, some illegal activity. So instead of, uh, you know, they could have done a lot of things um, to start and uh, some of them would have, I think, been constitutional. But one of the early things they decided to do was without going to a judge and getting a warrant, right, with no judicial oversight, they had somebody dressed up like a utility worker, climb a utility pole across the street from the house, install on it a small, totally not noticeable digital camera that was wired into the power supply, so running all the time, and that broadcasted back to a police operation post. Uh, and they kept this camera running, pointed at the front of, of our client's house for eight months. It was always recording. So police could watch the feed live. And if they were watching it live, they could they could zoom in, they could pan, they could tilt up and down, you know, could get enough detail to see what would, uh, residents of the house or visitors were carrying their hands to get license plates, um, really recording, you know, everything that happened in the driveway and uh, the front yard and the path up to the front door. Can house. I interject just yeah. really quickly? Sorry to trip you up, but I, I, I'm curious. In a situation like this, wouldn't it just be so easy to get the warrant? Like, why do the police not just get the warrant in this kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, I think in different cases, there, there may be a couple different reasons. I think a major reason is they don't think they have to. And so they want to take the path of least resistance. I think in some investigations, probably a significant number, they could get the warrant, right? It's late enough in the investigation that they've developed probable cause. But definitely in some set of investigations, they're at the kind of hunch, you know, anonymous tip kind of stage. It's not probable cause at all. And so they say, oh, well, we think the law allows us to do this. So let's just let's just do it. Um, and those are the cases, of course, where having a judge in the mix makes the difference, uh, where we want a judge to say, do you have probable cause? Do you have actual credible reason to think that there's a legal activity happening here? And if so, maybe I'll give you a warrant, but I'll I'll make it for 30 days. And if you haven't gotten what you need by then, come back and let's talk about an extension, but you can't have some you know, endless authority to record everything. Here, they just claim for themselves endless authority. And they ran this camera for eight months. Uh, it created a digital recording that was easily searchable for everything that happened at the house over those 
eight months. And the government's argument for why they should be allowed to do this without a warrant is pretty parallel to what they, what they said in Carpenter, as, as you were noting. Instead of the third party doctrine, it's what we often call the public exposure doctrine, which is this you know, very longstanding idea in the Fourth Amendment that if what you're doing is out in public and any member of the public could walk by and see you and any police officer on the beat or in their car could drive by and see you, then you've exposed that, that activity or that thing to the public and you can't complain if police notice it and you know, if it turns out to be incriminating. And that's fine as far as it goes. You know, if I'm like in front of my apartment building doing something illegal and the police drive by and they literally see with their eyes me doing that, or even they drive by with a, a recording device of some kind, a camera, and they get me, you know, I've maybe assumed the risk that I, someone might happen to see me in some discrete time frame. The problem here is that, of course, none of us expect that the full set of everything we do at the most intimate and private place we ever are, our home, can be recorded perfectly with perfect recall for months upon months, right? The fact that some random set of passersby might see discrete moments of what we do doesn't mean that we have intentionally or knowingly or reasonably exposed the sum total of our entire lives at our homes to police scrutiny. And so this is another, another case where we say, you know, that old rule might be fine for the situations that we all expected it to apply to before the digital camera age. But now the police have these teeny, very inexpensive, internet-connected broadcasting cameras that they can just put up on a pole and record everything. We need a new rule. And, and the only rule that can appropriately protect privacy is the normal Fourth Amendment protection of a warrant, right? It's not, you know, this is nothing new. This is nothing hard for police to understand how to deal with. They get warrants all the time, of course. If they want to search the house, they have to get a warrant. Uh, if they want to do a wiretap, they have to get a special kind of of warrant. Uh, lots of invasions require warrants, uh, and this should be added to that list. You've petitioned the Supreme Court to review that case. The court has sought a response from the government. Uh, there's been some extensions and stuff, so that'll take its time. But I, listeners, you know, keep an eye out for that one. I think it's a strong candidate to get granted. So hopefully you'll, you'll get your next quill. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'll just say that the, you know, the the kind of classic situation where you expect the Supreme Court to step in uh, is when federal courts of appeals and state Supreme Courts are disagreeing about a significant issue. And that's exactly what we have here. You know, we've had a, a set of courts, uh, mostly federal courts of appeals, uh, but not all of them to consider this, that have said, look, our hands are tied. You know, the, what you expose to the public, you've exposed to the public. And whether that's five minutes or eight months doesn't really matter no expectation of privacy. And then there's another set of courts, including Supreme Courts of South Dakota and Colorado, and an older decision from the US Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, not thought of as like a bastion of liberal jurisprudence by any means, but a, a really conservative court that have said, no, 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 you can't, uh, you cannot apply that old rule to this new context. Uh, the, the nature of the invasion is totally out of proportion. And um, what Carpenter tells us is that you can't just mechanically extend these older rules to these newer technological contexts. Yeah, and a nice further illustration of the division here, the first, the tiny first circuit with its six active judges. Maybe you want an odd number of judges doing <laughs> on banc panels. Side note, uh, they deadlocked 3-3. So we will see what happens. Speaking of conservatives, they warrant extra attention because they are six of the justices on the court. So their thinking naturally is of note. Uh, 
the Fourth Amendment gives originalists fits. For one thing, the word unreasonable is right there in the text. And I think uh, just the word unreasonable as a concept, it just, you can't really freeze that in time. Um, and then as we've already been discussing the advance of technology, she's just ruthless in terms of rendering original understandings of the Fourth Amendment obsolete. So I have taken a, a real interest in reading through, particularly as it relates to these four seminal cases so far this century, you know, what are the conservatives up to? And it's actually a, a real topic of interest. I think there's a lot of intellectual ferment among them. So I've already mentioned that in United States versus Jones, we had the debate between Justice Scalia basically trying to just jam old tort law concepts onto modern technology and Justice Alito pushing back. So an intramural conservative argument, I guess you could call that. Justice Scalia also wrote, you mentioned the Kelo decision. That was, and I, you know, Justice Scalia was brilliant. I don't mean it in that way, but I thought of that really as a faux originalist opinion. He kind of used originalist language while imposing a living constitution concept, at least in the Fourth Amendment, saying, oh, the Fourth Amendment has to maintain the same amount of protection as when it was originally passed, which is great. But that doesn't map onto the text of the provision very neatly. And he did this sort of sleight of hand where he sort of happily applied a decision called Katz to back up a couple steps. We have Olmstead decision, which was a very old decision in which the court said, look, even like a wiretap on a telephone, that's kosher because it doesn't literally fit into like the material things that are listed in the Fourth Amendment. And Justice Brandeis was like, that's a really dumb idea, guys. You're going to look really stupid. That ended up being the case. Fast forward in the 60s, you get this Katz decision where the court says, okay, that was a bad idea. We're going to impose a looser privacy rule that Nate can much better explain than I can. Katz, Scalia picks up in Kilo and just kind of quietly says, great, let's use this case. Justice Thomas, meanwhile, has been at open war with Katz. He's repeatedly written, you know, that's not originalism. I reject it. I would overturn it if I could. Justice Gorsuch in Carpenter wrote this weird concurrence where he was like, Katz is bad. Let's get rid of it. But oh, hey, I've, I, I'm so smart. I, Neil Gorsuch, that let me explain to you how even if we get rid of it, like that will somehow make Fourth Amendment protections even stronger, which I just don't get that at all. Um, I hope all that table setting sort of makes sense because I wanted to put it to you, Nate. I, I find all this very interesting. Please feel free to riff and give your thoughts on any aspect of what I just said. And then also I'm curious, you know, it's not your job to do the originalist work for them, but kind of kind of taking them on their own terms, like instead of just saying, like, stop being originalist, can you give any thoughts on on what path they should follow? Yeah. I, so th there are really interesting and important and consequential debates happening now within the Supreme Court and within you know legal academia and, and lower courts about how we can interpret the Fourth Amendment to be appropriately protective. And you know the place we are right now, I think, is is a pretty good place where there are, there are now kind of two 
two tests of how to apply the Fourth Amendment that are both alive and living next to each other. And the Supreme Court and lower courts are applying one or the other or both as makes sense in the, the particular case. So the you were talking about the, the Katz opinion, and that was the, the first case from the Supreme Court that established what we now know as the reasonable expectation of privacy test. And that, you know, from the 60s until about a decade ago or so, that was sort of understood in the courts to be the single way to interpret whether the Fourth Amendment applies to police action or not. Uh, and the test there is, you, you say, as a judge, has the government's action intruded on an expectation of privacy that a person actually has, what's often called their subjective expectation of privacy? And is that expectation of privacy one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable? Um, and sometimes that test has been very easy to apply, right? Say, you know, police enter your home without a warrant. You know, the the home is named in the Fourth Amendment as one of the the areas or things that is protected against unreasonable searches. And it's very easy for judges to say, yeah, you know, when the government enters our homes, that is intruding on our expectations of privacy. And the whole point of, you know, a, a major point of the Fourth Amendment was to put that off limits to warrantless police entry. Uh, so that's unreasonable. That's a search. A warrant's required unless some exception to the warrant requirement applies for another reason. You know, there are certainly cases where that test is harder to apply. And I think, you know, there there are some criticisms of the reasonable expectation of privacy test from conservatives and some more liberal kind of commentators that they have something to them, right? That, that um, you know, some of the criticisms have focused on how that test really just leaves it up to the intuition of unelected judges who skew older, whiter, and mm -hmm. more male than the population at large, right? To intuit, you know, who expects what kind of privacy in what situations. Um, and it's kind of circular a little it's bit. A, yeah, it is, right? It's it totally circular. And you're, you know, and so there, the court in, you know, layering upon layering of opinions over years has pointed to various sources that judges can look to to identify what society recognizes as reasonable. It might be sometimes to statutes that have been, uh, you know, enacted that identify certain things as protected. It might be to older legal concepts, say property law or or tort law. It might be, you know, occasionally you see public opinion polling come in. Occasionally you see, you know, just the facts of the situation, how people are acting in the particular area. So, you know, judges sort of do their best to get to the right answer. And I think it sometimes has been appropriately protective. And then sometimes we've had, you know, I think major misreads of how people in this country understand their privacy, say those old third party doctrine cases, right? That, you know, um, they're the law of the land now, you know, as to banking records and dial telephone numbers. But, you know, I think you ask an average person, like, how do you feel about the government having a record of everybody you've called and texted? That's actually pretty private too, right? So that test, you know, hasn't always gotten it right when applied. And it depends. Well, it's also kind of weird, right? Because if it's reasonable expectation of privacy, then why do you need a Fourth Amendment? You just legislate that rule. Shouldn't the Fourth Amendment have some kind of like what society expects plus or whatever I right, wondered about? Right. Yeah. And, there, there, you know, there have been I mean, I think that's totally right. And there have been um, some Supreme Court opinions that have have gestured at that and said, you know, there may be situations where the Fourth Amendment just has to set a floor. Right. I think it was in Smith versus Maryland, which is the 1970s case about dialed telephone numbers, where the court says uh, in a footnote, I think, um, you know, this is not to say that if the government started announcing that from here on out, it's going to be our policy to do warrantless searches of homes, 
So we're going to condition people to expect that we're going to violate their privacy. Therefore, it becomes reasonable. That, that's not reasonable, right? And the court says, you know, we're going to sometimes we just have to draw a normative line and say the Fourth Amendment put some guardrails and here's where those guardrails are. And that's that's played out in, in cases, too. So that's that's one test. And that's still law of the land. The courts are still applying that test. What has come up as a, a parallel test is this attempt really starting in the Jones opinion, that GPS tracking case, uh, and coming through a set of, of opinions after, an attempt to have what is maybe a more originalist reading of, or more textual reading of the Fourth Amendment that relies more on concepts of property law or maybe other sources of law to identify whether the government has intruded upon a protected area, right? So the, the Fourth Amendment says, this is the first half of it, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, right? So it identifies this, this set of four things, persons, houses, papers, and effects that are protected against unreasonable searches and seizures. And so in, in Jones, the GPS case, you had Justice Scalia writing for half the court, basically saying, well, okay, so we we have someone's car here, that's in effect a thing, an effect um, under the Fourth Amendment. And you had police without that person's permission, without the car driver's permission, attaching an item to its undercarriage that did location tracking. What is What do we call it in the law, in the common law, when you attach something to somebody's effect, their property without permission? We call that a trespass to chattels in kind of ye old Anglo-Saxon common law. What Justice Scalia says is, uh, well, here we have an intrusion, a trespass on your effects for the purpose of gathering information. We're going to call that a search too. And that doesn't mean that, you know, in some situations where there's not a trespass, we won't apply that expectation of privacy test. Say if it's just, you know, through transmission of electronic signals, we'll deal with that case later. But at least where there's a trespass, we can have an easy solution. A, a, a year or two after the Jones opinion, there was a case that came out of Florida called um, Florida versus Hardinez, where police had, with a drug sniffing dog, had walked up onto the porch of a private home and kind of lingered in front of the front door for a while while the dog sniffed for marijuana odors. I think it was marijuana, uh, some kind of drug odors. And the homeowner argued that that violated their Fourth Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court agreed. And the majority there used this, this kind of Scalia trespass test and said, look, you know, we, when we have a home, you know, you expect that people might walk up to your door onto your porch, say, uh, and knock on the door and see if you're home. But our societal expectation and the kind of implied privilege under property law to do that is limited to staying there for a brief moment. And if nobody answers, you turn around and walk away. There is no implied license under property law for some stranger to walk up with a drug sniffing dog and linger on your porch for longer than it takes to knock on the door and see if someone's home. And once you have, so now you're trespassing, basically it's a technical trespass to gather information. We're going to call that a search. Now there was a concurrence there that Justice Kagan, Kagan seemed wrote. worried in that concurrence. Yeah, and, and she, yeah. she says basically, oh, f fine as far as it goes, but this is equally a search under the expectation of privacy test because we also don't expect, as a matter of privacy, right, we don't expect police, you know, government agents to be wandering back and forth on our porch with a device, a dog in this case, that can detect information from inside our homes. That's, you know, you could address this on either ground and let's talk about the, the privacy implications. So there is, there's certainly this, this conversation on the court. 
going on. And I think, uh, you know, in some cases, it may be easier to apply one of those tests versus the other and get to the right place. You know, just a, a, an example from a, a case that we litigated and won recently uh, along with the ACLU of Michigan in the Michigan Supreme Court about fingerprinting people on the street. So, you know, folks are probably familiar with the the kind of ongoing debate that was very hot a few years ago about stop and frisk by police on on city streets. Um, and there's this that comes from an old Fourth Amendment case uh, from the 1960s called Terry versus Ohio that says if police have reasonable suspicion that that somebody is violating or about to violate the law out in public, they can briefly stop that person and ask them some questions to see if they can you know dispel the suspicion or whether it turns out they actually think you know that person uh, is engaged in illegal activity. And during that stop, if police have reasonable suspicion that the person's armed and dangerous, then they can pat the person down to look for weapons. Now that, you know, lots of mischief has resulted from police uh, over-exercising that, that stop and frisk ability. But what we challenged in the Michigan case was the, uh, a policy by the city of Grand Rapids, whenever it stopped someone on the street pursuant to that old case authority, and that person was not carrying a photo ID, and mind you, nobody is required to carry a photo ID in this country. Right? If that person was not carrying a photo ID, then police, even if that person satisfactorily answered all their questions about who are you, where are you going, police would, as a matter of policy, photograph them and fingerprint them, uh, fingerprint them on a like a paper ink and, and paper fingerprint card, and then take the card back to the station. And the next day, it would get enrolled in a big uh, and growing fingerprint database. Now, of course, uh, you know who is most affected by this policy? Who ends up in this biometric database? People who are least likely to have licenses. So young people who aren't driving yet. It's a city, so people who can't afford to have a car, people who rely on public transportation, which is disproportionately people of color, uh, Black people in Grand Rapids. Uh, so it was a skewed discriminatory biometric database. But we, the ACLU challenged it um, on Fourth Amendment grounds, and the uh, state Supreme Court in Michigan, in a unanimous decision, said, well, at the very least, that's a search because police grab someone's thumb without their consent, so they trespassed on a person's body and pressed it on ink and onto paper and gathered information, your biometric identifier, your fingerprint, that's a search under that trespass line. And then a plurality of the court in a concurring opinion said, yep, we agree with that, but also it's a violation of your privacy, right? Sure, our hands might be exposed to the public as we walk around, but no member of the public can discern your fingerprint when you're just walking around with your hands you know, by your side. You need special equipment and special expertise to get the biometric identifier out of that. That's still private. And so this also is a search because of privacy uh, under the privacy test. And so, you know, I think maybe it's helpful to have two tests out there, uh, but there are still unanswered questions, you know, and there, there are commentators and, and justices arguing about, you know, how, how should we understand the, you know, the, the word unreasonable in the Fourth Amendment, right? How do you look to you know, what was the law, you know, tort law or property law in the 1700s? Do you look to what property or tort law is today? Can you draw analogies? Does there have to be an actual statute or a controlling, you know, tort law case on the kind of intrusion? Or can you draw sort of more general conclusions from sort of like the gestalt of the law overall? Uh, these are totally unanswered uh, and unsettled questions. You know, and the, the last thing I'll say is in, in the Moore case, in our, our petition um, to the court asking it to take up this case, you know, one of the things we, we focus on is the right of people to be secure in their homes against unreasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment. And uh, although that camera is not trespassing into the home, 
it is certainly disturbing people's security at their homes, right? Like nobody, uh, nobody wants to live with the knowledge that every time they leave or enter their house, the government is is making a record of it. That just so interrupts our ability to live our lives in the way that we expect in a democratic society. Yeah, Moore seems like a very strong candidate for the sort of hybrid approach. I, my my conception of it, hybrid approach that we see in Kilo and. It does seem to be the the divide between sort of the Clarence Thomas originalism versus Antonin Scalia originalism. You know, if Clarence Thomas concludes that the proper meaning of the First Amendment is that all it protects is against like government prior constraints of speech, he's going to be like, yeah, let's, this is what we're doing. Right. You know, five Clarence's Thomas is on the courts. That's the rule tomorrow. Whereas Scalia, you know, his famous line, I'm, orig- I'm an originalist, I'm not a nut. And he had a little more shall we say, political savvy, I mean, political there in kind of the small P sense where, you know, he he had a capacity to let certain ships sail. And um, so maybe the, the best approach here from that angle is to just have two tests. That's great. Civil rights, awesome. And, uh, you know, we will dust off our textbooks from the 18th century because we're into that every now and then. But at the end of the day, I... I that sh- that should be appealing from the ACLU point of view, and you know you take what you can get. But yeah, we'll and, and you know we'll I, I I think that you know the intuition from kind of both sides of the spectrum uh, on the judiciary is really the the same, right? It's that the Fourth Amendment is intended to constrain police power, right? It, it is a virtue and the purpose of the Fourth Amendment to put friction into the investigative process, right? To make it a little harder to protect civil liberties, right? To protect whether you call it privacy or you call it security or you know, unreasonable searches, you can put different names on it. And yeah, there, there are now different paths to get there. But I I don't think, I don't think there's a fundamental disagreement among still a majority of the Supreme Court about where we're trying to get to. There's just some, some struggle about like what path you take to get there. That's a perfect segue into, I want to discuss a little bit what zero friction looks like. Because at the outset, I talked about the way that technology is advancing and the logical endpoint of the technologies that I described at the outset, I would put it to you, is uh, Xinjiang in China right now, where you know you put cameras everywhere. Now, granted, there are, there are some distinctions here. There are definitely things going on there that we couldn't do here. Uh, you know, forced questionnaires about your religious practice, actually stopping random people on the street and searching their smartphones. So let's be clear, there are, there are distinguishing features. But there are a lot of things, these, these data centers, you know, even local precincts have these data centers that would be would not be out of place like in the bowels of the NSA where they are collecting all this data and they have these platforms that can process it all create a profile of you of everyone the cameras are so powerful they recognize not just faces but like you know your emotions your facial expression even the way that you walk can identify you And then, of course, all of the data is stored so they can bring it up and know all kinds of things that are gathered from other places. There's a lot of sort of big data analysis now where data can be sucked in from different places and collated onto a platform. There's debate about to what degree does the Chinese Communist Party sort of overplay that because they want to impress everyone. But it's a thing. And even if it's not here now, that is definitely coming. That's the trend. So 
for the CCP, at least in terms of trying to use this technology, ultimately what they do is they take the data, they process it with artificial intelligence. And from there on, anybody in public, they can flag people of interest, including political dissidents, and then they can spot undesirable activity, including any whiff of protest. And you're starting to head toward a Black Mirror episode very quickly. So my question for you is, how worried should we be here in terms of whether there's enough, enough substance to our Fourth Amendment protections to keep us from sliding toward that nightmare outcome? And then how worried should we be in the sense that, you know, just because the Fourth Amendment we might decide is not strong enough, like that doesn't mean we're going to end up there. There's all kinds of other checks in our system. How worried should we be that we are going to drift in that direction anyway? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should be um, very worried, but not despondent, right? I, I think like we have the tools to protect ourselves, but we really have to work to make sure that they're applied and that everyone's paying attention. You know, one of the ch real challenges in this whole area is, I mean, it's sort of a truism to say that, uh, you know, technology moves fast and the law moves a lot slower. And so, you know, even in, in areas where we think we have the Fourth Amendment tools and doctrines to get it right eventually, doesn't mean that we're not going to end up finding out years later that the government has been doing something secretly that now we, we need to challenge. And this has happened over and over with um, with various kinds of police technologies, you know, cell phone tracking equipment or facial recognition tools or you name it. Um, and there's, I, I think it is always harder for courts at a, just a practical level for courts to take away a power that police are already using as opposed to putting limits on it closer to the outset because you just have judges who are, I think, at a personal level, kind of afraid of being the ones that are, you know, responsible for like the one bad guy going free, right? That you know, and the fingerprinting, right? I mean, fingerprinting just kind of took hold before we had Fourth Amendment scrutiny much, right? Th th that's totally right. I mean, what's interesting about that Michigan fingerprinting case is that there's, you know, there's a ton of law now, you know, years after fingerprinting came about saying, uh, you know, after you've been arrested, you get to be fingerprinted, right? Like you're in custody, the government has all these interests in identifying you, like nothing doing there, the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect you. And those cases all, you know, they're all significantly after fingerprinting really got going. But there's basically no case law until this Michigan case about police fingerprinting people just out going about their lives. Because it turns out that's not really happening very much. Grand Rapids was you know, experimenting. It was this, you know, longstanding policy of theirs that was really invasive and, and pretty abusive, we think. And the ACLU was able to, to challenge that, uh, you know, some years after it got going, but before, you know, dozens of other police departments around the country started trying to take fingerprints from everyone they were stopping. And so that's a, you know, I think that's a success story of a court being able to get in there soon enough to interrupt an expansion. You know, one of the things we are deeply worried about is facial recognition technology. And today, you know, the, the way it's being predominantly used in the U.S., maybe almost ex exclusively used by police, is where police have a, a static photo of a suspect they're trying to identify. It might be pulled from a security camera, it might be from some other source, and they run it through a matching database against arrest photos or increasingly against driver's license photos. And there are lots of potentials for abuse there, including misidentifications. You know, I represent with a, 
a team of lawyers, uh, a man in Detroit who was falsely arrested after his recognition system incorrectly identified him. So there's a lot, lot of things wrong there, and we don't think the police should even be doing that. But the real nightmare scenario that hasn't happened yet in the US that you were kind of talking about in, in China is hooking up face recognition cameras to citywide networks of, or face recognition algorithms to citywide networks of surveillance cameras. And I think, you know, should that happen? And we know of cities that have bought that capability, but none of them have turned it on in a pervasive way yet, partly because of community pushback. You know, if we find out about that and it's really pervasive facial recognition surveillance that is effectively identifying and tracking anybody or everybody as they go about their lives, we have good arguments really from Carpenter and from Jones about location tracking and some of the other Fourth Amendment cases. We have good arguments if we know about it early enough, right, and can get into court. Uh, and that that's a, a real problem. There are other areas that are just much harder to figure out how to argue under current Fourth Amendment law. And some of those are just going to require legislative solutions. And, you know, there are different different approaches to that that, you know, I have colleagues here who are working on and certainly lots of other advocates around the country. Sometimes the approaches are to try to like regulate particular technologies, you know, require a warrant for certain kinds of cell phone tracking, for example. Sometimes it's more of a transparency and democratic accountability approach. So we we have been working with, with local activists and community groups in cities around the country on what we call community control over police surveillance ordinances. And these are local laws that require police departments before buying or using a new surveillance technology to disclose it to the public, disclose it to the city council or whatever the governing body is. There has to be a chance for public debate at that elected um, elected body. There has to, usually these ordinances require some kind of a, like a privacy and equity impact study by the police. And then there's a vote from of elected officials about whether police should in fact be able to use this. And if so, what are the guardrails and the protections and the limitations around it? And that's you know, a great way to avoid the secrecy problem, right? So we, as like the people who are representatives and our police are supposed to be serving, know what's happening ahead of time and can try to organize against abusive technologies and figure out what reasonable restrictions are on capabilities that we want the government to have, but not to abuse. You know, it's not a perfect solution, but it's another, another way to try to get some more checks into the system. Yeah, the biggest hole that I see is just the Fourth Amendment having nothing to say as it stands about, you know, once the government lawfully gets the information, nobody has done anything about, you know, what they can do with it. Because in the founding era, like, <laughs> there was no Palantir, right? Like, the data sharing was was rudimentary, and that is advancing so fast. Connected to that, if there's one big distinction that I feel like we have better protections than Uyghurs, the government, to my understanding, can't just go hoovering up data willy-nilly through like, they can't just send a third-party subpoena to Bank of America and without any reason just say like, give us all your banking records. Uh, there needs to be a connection to an investigation, which is a big difference between us and them. But last month, the Wall Street Journal reported that hundreds of federal, state, and local U.S. law enforcement agencies have access without court oversight to a database of more than 150 million money transfers between people in the U.S. and in more than 20 countries. I'm quoting from the article. I believe you're quoted in that article. The ACLU played an integral role in that story. 
that story is disturbing to me because it's a sign that what I just said about us being protected and okay, we're not like Xinjiang, um, that maybe I should be a little more concerned. So please tell us about that case. Yeah, so this is a, it's a really troubling and really flummoxing uh, set of, of government overreach uh, that we have, um, we've uncovered a lot through public records requests to the Arizona Attorney General's office. And Senator Wyden's office has uncovered a whole bunch of information about federal connections to this story that I'm about to tell. And it's resulted in some, some reporting and some changes in policy at the federal level. But there's still this program uh, is still still going. So um, I'm going to give you a little history here because it's in order to understand like the kind of mind-boggling scope of this surveillance program, uh, you have to go back to 2006 when the person who was the attorney general of the state of Arizona at that time uh, wanted to start looking into money transfers using Western Union that he thought were funding uh, what he called human smuggling into Arizona. So he thought there were money transfers going between Arizona and other places in a particular state in Mexico that were ending up funding basically smuggling of people, uh, in, in his words, uh, you know, undocumented movements of people into the U.S. And he thought that his office could get a handle on, on what to do about it by trying to track those, those money transfers. But instead of identifying you know, particular cases, particular suspects, even particular you know, sets of money transfers that might be actually connected to actual legal activity. They sent a subpoena, which again is just a piece of paper that commands um, a company to turn something over, under um, invoking the authority of a state anti-racketeering statute to Western Union, requesting the Western Union turn over a record of every money transfer of $300 or more into or out of this particular state in Mexico. And Western Union resisted, saying basically what you you said at the outset of the the question, right? This is way overbroad. We're not going to hand over this quantity of our customers' data. You know, come back with a more particularized, narrow request. It got litigated in Arizona state courts, and the Arizona Court of Appeals agreed with Western Union and said, "No, no, you you know, state, you have pretty wide authority under your criminal jurisdiction to do investigations, but it's not close to this wide, right? Like, this includes money transfers that don't even touch Arizona." You know, like somebody in in California or Idaho who's sending a remittance back home to to Mexico is going to get swept up here. Uh, it includes records as to which there's no ongoing investigation at all. It's this is a prospective request, right? You're requiring ongoing reporting, and so there's not even like not even a thing that's happened yet that you're investigating. Uh, so no, you can't do that. The state of Arizona then knew it couldn't use those subpoenas. In that way, unsatisfied though, uh, it soon sued Western Union under a state anti-money laundering law, basically alleging that Western Union wasn't doing due, due diligence in identifying illegal transactions or, or structured illegal transactions um, through its service. Western Union ended up settling that lawsuit, uh, paid a very large hundred million dollar fine. It was then, I think, a, a record-setting fine at the time. But for our purposes, what Western Union also interestingly and disturbingly agreed to do is to turn over effectively the same and even more data to the Arizona state government than had been issued in that uh, at issue in that previous subpoena. So starting in 2010, uh, Western Union started turning over records on an ongoing basis of every money transfer of $500 or more sent to or from any of the southern border states, so Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, or California, as well as transfers to or from anywhere in Mexico. So we're talking about a resident of Sacramento 
sends money to their mother in Chicago to help her with a medical expense. Record of that goes into the database. Someone in Phoenix sends money to a friend in Tucson or tries to pay a bill over Western Union. That goes in. You know, an immigrant living in uh, New Mexico sends money back home to their family in El Salvador. That goes in. So very broad. That reporting, that, that data transfer went on for years. And then in 2014, the settlement agreement changed to kind of change the arrangement to set up this weird nonprofit entity called the Transaction Record Analysis Center that going forward was going to receive the Western Union data, as well as data from other money transfer companies, and make it available to cops around the country with just a login, direct, direct access. So starting in 2014, it started growing this database of Western Union data. And at the same time, the state of Arizona started sending those same kind of subpoenas that a, a state appellate court had told them they can't use for this, started sending those to other money transfer companies, you know, MoneyGram and RIA. There, there are a couple dozen of these companies. Uh, and they just started handing it over. They did not resist at all. Uh, we're not sure why. This program has gone on now for years. And we now know that this database has more than 150 million records of people's private money transfers and that more than 12,000 law enforcement officers from more than 700 state, local, and federal police departments or field offices of, of agencies have direct login access to this database. There's a huge amount of data from people just moving money around, mostly for totally legal reasons, in just in government hands and using these, these subpoenas that have no tie to a particular investigation that are just completely dragnet and overbroad. You know, the, the last piece of this, uh, which is the federal component, is that Western Union, eventually the settlement agreement ended with the state AG, uh, state attorney general in Arizona. So Western Union in 2019 stopped being under an obligation to report this data to the state. The state didn't want it to end though. So they turned to the federal department of Homeland Security and asked a field office in Phoenix to start issuing federal subpoenas to Western Union to keep that data flow going. Uh, so they did, and Western Union was, was complying with those. Uh, now, it turns out those federal subpoenas were, they were, of course, overbroad and we think unconstitutional, but also they were illegal under federal law because they were being issued under a federal statute that is only about very narrow kinds of customs investigations, like getting the manifest for a shipment coming across the border uh, and not for this kind of like totally untethered, suspicionless dragnet. So the federal government, when Senator Wyden's office started asking questions, withdrew those subpoenas. But the state of Arizona uh, is still sending subpoenas to all these other companies, still collecting this data, still making it freely available with no subpoena or no warrant, no oversight to these thousands of police around the country who are using it to query people's financial information for really any reason. There's really no constraint on them. Uh, it's a, an extraordinary program that's operated in secret for years. And as far as we know, it's still going. What an operatic tale of surveillance creep. Disturbing note to end on. Sweet dreams, boys and girls. Um, <laughs> it also makes me think, well, we'll have to do an episode on digital currencies. Nate, this has been spectacular. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. As we head out the door, so everybody keep an eye out for more and good luck with it, Nate. Thank um, you. Is there any other work you'd like to preview or highlight before we head out? Um, you know, I think the in, in general, a lot of our work involves identifying these older Fourth Amendment doctrines and trying to find the ways to explain to courts 
how they should not be expanded unthinkingly into digital age context. So, you know, the public exposure doctrine and these poll cameras and more is one example. Uh, we're doing a lot of work around what we call unavoidably shed DNA and the abandonment doctrine, right? So the, uh, you know, the old Fourth Amendment rule is if you abandon an item that's yours to the public, you throw away a coffee cup, you, you know, you toss out your trash, you are deemed to have given up all of your property and privacy interests in it, right? You've, you've left it to the world to, to have, have at it. And if police turn out to be the ones who grab your, you know, your discarded utility bill or your trash bag or whatever it is, then too bad for you. You've just given it up to the world. Uh, well, the police, you know, are making this argument in the context of your DNA as well in investigations where they, you know, want to see if somebody's a match to some crime scene sample. And so they follow them around until they drop a coffee cup and then police grab that coffee cup and say it's abandoned. And therefore we can analyze all of your DNA on it and create a profile and try to match it to crime scenes or do anything else. Um, and it's another context where we're filing briefs in courts around the country arguing, you know, the abandonment doctrine might mean you can seize the coffee cup. But it can't mean that you can also learn every bit of someone's genetic information without a warrant. Uh, you have to go to a judge and show that you actually have a good reason to do this and get some, some limitations on what you can do with that data. Uh, and there are many other examples of those. Um, and courts are really, you know, they're struggling to figure out how to apply the Fourth Amendment in robust ways. But, but courts are getting it right, you know, a, a promising number of times, even though, you know, far from all the time. Fantastic. Nate Wessler, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Thank you once again. I am Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this, please do go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. It helps us out. And while you go do that, we'll start getting to work on the next one. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.